Well, I know that uh, for some of you, it's a matter of some amusement how often uh, I quote from, um, from Tim Keller. <laughs> Actually, some of you have reported to me that it's a little bit irritating how often I quote from Tim. Um, but you know, just to kind of lay my cards on the table here, I, I, there's nobody that is living presently among the Presbyterian Reformed world that's had a greater impact on my life than Tim Keller. Uh, I remember telling the search committee when I took this job that I, I've gotten to the point where I've imbibed so much of what Tim has done that I can't tell exactly where, where he starts and I begin or end or whatever. Um, but I can tell you that um, uh, there's many, many times when I've been sort of listening to some of the stuff that he's done when I'm just really deeply moved in a powerful way. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is one of those times. And because I very, uh, care very uh, uh, much about avoiding plagiarism, I need to tell you that my outline is drawn from that sermon that I listened to about 10 years ago. But there's a reason why I was thinking about this passage. And um, honestly, it was very personal. Uh, and again, to be as transparent as I can, a lot of it has to do with just my anxiety surrounding this whole quarantine thing. Uh, and coupled with the, um, just the crazy uh, social unrest that we've had lately. Uh, as we think about going into the new building in the midst of such tumultuous times, I've just felt un unwound. <laughs> um, I I've been longing for us to move into this new building for well over a decade now. Uh, you can ask a lot of other folks, I've been talking about this for quite some time, and what it's gonna mean for our church and for outreach into the community. And I found myself on more times than not just saying, God, why? <laughs> why would you allow this to happen at this time? I mean, these people have invested all of this money and all of this energy to build this beautiful new building. I, and I don't understand why he would choose for things to happen this way. And again, maybe this is just me, but, but this is kind of where my thoughts kind of start to turn a little dark. Because when I start to think this way, my first reaction time is often, uh, first reaction, is to oftentimes think, am, am I being punished? <laughs> uh, is there something maybe that I did wrong? Was this the path that maybe God didn't want us to take in this whole thing? And I begin to feel like God's providential love and care that He's shown up until this time, it just starts to feel like it's being threatened. Okay, so enter Isaiah 49, because it turns out, it turns out that God's people always feel this way. Um, you know, th this chapter that we're looking at is written to a people that were presently enslaved in exile. They're not home. They're away from where they belong. And, and you get this incredible chapter that's chocked with all these beautiful promises that God makes about what He's going to do, where He's going to take His people. He's coming to bring them salvation and, and, and establish this massive, uh, international, multiracial people of God that's going to emanate from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. A new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's breathtaking in its scope. But when you get to verses 14 through 16, you get this very familiar exchange between God and a very fearful people. But the way in which Yahweh responds to His people, quite frankly, it's one of the most tender passages that you can find in the Old Testament. Uh, so that's why I wanted to consider it this morning. In three headings, really, uh, I want to look at the fear uh, and the promise uh, and the seal uh, that's inherent here. Let's look first of all at the fear here. Uh, to set this passage up, I mean, you've got to understand who it is that's actually talking there in verse 14, because it reads, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. The first question is, who is Zion? Hey, well, Zion is actually just the name 
uh, that King David, all the way back in the very early parts of the uh, Jewish monarchy, named this rather largish hill in the very center of Jerusalem. And it was so prominent in the city that that was where they chose to build, uh, to place the tabernacle and to build the great uh, uh, temple that Solomon constructed. But by the time the temple was done, it really dominated the skyline of Jerusalem. So much so that over time, Zion became synonymous with the people of God. In other words, it wasn't just a place, it was a people. So now you can hear what's going on in verse 14, because God's made all these wonderful promises, and as people look back and they're like, okay, I hear those, I even get them to a certain extent. I just don't feel it. I'm not experiencing that right now. In other words, what's happened is, is their present circumstances in their exile and in their slavery are more real at the moment than what God's promises have made about them. Now look, there is no way that I'm the only one who relates to this particular impression. Because in many ways, it's kind of one of the weirder things about how complex we are as people, that, that we have this capacity to believe something, even to be convinced that it's true, but still just not be able to have it register on the inside. I can still doubt whether it like really applies to me. I can affirm that they're true, uh, but not really have it really affect me in my life at any given time. Man, why is that? I, well, you know, who knows? But my guess is it has something to do with how, how at war we are uh, with ourselves as human beings. You know, we're weird because we have this capacity on the one hand to have a, a voice inside us that screams, what are you worried about? God has made His promises to you. Stand on those things. And at the exact same moment, I can have this equally powerful voice inside me look and say, but look at the bills mounting up. Um, look at your family and how much it's struggling. Um, uh, look at the guidance that co that's coming from our local and city officials. Look at the science of how this, this whole thing is spreading. Look at the riots on television every single day. And what happens is it starts to feel like the promises that God makes are really, really weak. So look, I really want you to let that sink in for a second because a belief about who God is and what He's going to do is really a lightning bolt into the middle of your circumstances. But more times than not, that belief is cutting across however I'm presently feeling, or that's a better way to say this, however I'm presently interpreting my circumstances. Look, every single thing that happens to you in your life is interpreted. We work to understand what that fight that we had with my family member means last night. We work to sort of get some interpretation of our circumstances that makes sense of our life. But so often, that interpretation looks like just the opposite of what God's promises are for His people. I think that happens all the time. But look, let's also remember that the life that we want... The life that God, I think, wants His people to live in is where my beliefs about what He says and my experiences and my interpretation of my experiences, where they match up. I want to live in. I want to feel. I want to experience God's love as a daily reality that's not threatened by all this back and forth changes in my life. I want my doctrine to inform my heart and my passions and my treasures in life because when I don't, what happens is, what happens in the passage, I begin to feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. And we look to God and we say those kind of things to Him all the time. 
So that's the fear that these people are experiencing. Let's look secondly, though, at the promise that God delivers to them. Because again, God walks into this fear, you know? Uh, there's there's a, a point to be made about how God doesn't... He doesn't stand aloof, at least in this particular instance, of his people's struggle and, and shame them for it. Um, what he does is he walks into it and he says, I want to take your question very seriously. And the way I want to answer that question is by getting you to think about something. And it's there in verse 15. And he says, I want you to ask the question, can a mother forget the baby that she's presently nursing? Is that possible? And, and, and to, I honestly think that the way in which God is dealing with us right now is, is really beautiful. And it's some beautiful counseling and some great therapy for us. Because what he's inviting them to do is so unique because he's saying, what I want to do is I want to grant you an image. I want to give you a metaphor. And I want you to take it. Yes, it's, it's a theological truth. But I want you to take it inside and I want you to mull over it. I want you to contemplate it. I want you to turn it over until eventually at some point that truth cracks open and begins to bring a healing into you that only that image can really do. Look, bear with me for a second, but it occurred to me while I was thinking about this that it's a little bit like one of those, um, those cough drops that you take when you're sick that have the liquid center in them, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you pop one of those things in your mouth and your mouth starts to water just because of the sweetness of the drop. But you know, over time, as you begin to work that thing around your mouth, eventually it starts to dissolve. And at one point it cracks open and on the inside is this sweet syrup that as you swallow it just coats your throat. And if you've been coughing and clearing your throat for forever because of your cold, man, it can bring some powerful satisfaction. Well, that's kind of what God wants His people to do. He says, I want you to take this image inside and I want you to roll it around your, your heart's tongue until something bursts inside of it that's soothing all of the fears that you are racked with right now. So here's the question, what's at the center of that drop? <laughs> well, in other words, what do we find when we take that metaphor in and it finally does crack open when we ponder it long enough? Well, let's look at it. God looks and says to them, can a mother forget her child? You know what? She may forget, but I won't. That's, that's the cough drop. What's in the center of it though? Well, so what happens when we start to mull over and think about this bond that exists between a mother and her nursing infant? Um, what do we find when we look into it? Keller, Tim came up with a couple of things. I, I thought of another one as we started thinking about it. And he goes like this. The first thing you've got to realize is that a bond between a mother and a newborn infant is actually a physical bond. Um, <laughs> You don't need an alarm. A, a nursing mother doesn't need an alarm to let her know when her baby needs to feed. If you've never dealt with a nursing mother, you don't know what I'm talking about. But I've never been more amazed uh, than when I had children how a woman's physical nature moves her towards the child. Ginger and I would be out to dinner or something while the child would be home uh, 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 with a babysitter or something. And she would kind of stop in the middle and she would say, I think we need to go home. It's time for me to feed the child. And I'd be like... We haven't even gotten dessert yet. What are you talking about? She just knew. She, you get uncomfortable when you don't nurse and feed the child. So, so there's a physical bond that exists between a mother and a child. But of course, the other thing that always used to um, make me smile whenever uh, uh, Ginger would nurse was that it's an emotional thing as well. 
Scientists say that there's all these endorphins that get released in the body of a woman while she's nursing that bring so much pleasure and deep joy and satisfaction at a child, even when it's a little bit challenging early on to start. But that contentment that comes uh, with a mother with her child is just something beautiful to consider. A third thing to consider is that when a mother's bond <clears throat> is created with a child, people like to, to refer to that as being an unconditional love. You know, the mother does all the giving and the child does all the taking, so it's unconditional. But I've actually come to realize that the word unconditional is not the right word for it. Because really, instead of being unconditional, it's really um, more proper, I think, to say that it's counter-conditional. In other words, a bond with a child is actually contrary to what the child is giving her at the moment. In other words, the child can feel like um, it's going to kill the mother sometimes and break her heart all the time, and yet she still say, stays in. Why? Because she's the mother, that's why. That's the relationship of a mother to a child. So look, that's the truth that God wants his people to mull over. And he says, I want you to roll it around on your tongue because eventually that hard candy is going to explode and the sweetest syrup is going to roll down into the deepest parts of you when you suddenly realize that this is how I think about you, God says. Let that, let that sink in. God says, put yourself in the place of a mother staring down at her nursing child and know in that moment that that's how I feel about you. I love this. God's saying, my love for you is visceral. Because you are created in my image, my love for you is powerfully inside of me. It, it, it's physical if you could talk about God as being physical. My love for you is emotionally, says, I could break into song when I think about how much I love you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God will rejoice over you with loud singing. He will quiet you with His love and exult over you with loud singing. I mean, that's emotional language where God is talking about this bond between Him and His people. And then finally, we know that His love is more than unconditional love, don't we? It's counter-conditional. It's not just that He loves us without a cause. It's that He loves us with every cause to despise us. So much so that J.I. Packer, in, in my favorite all-time quote from the book Knowing God, would say this. He says, there's a tremendous relief from knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic, based at every point upon a prior knowledge of the worst in me, so that there's no discovery that can disillusion him and quench his desire to bless me. That's counter-conditional love. You know, Keller makes a point that I looked into um, uh, where the translation says, even these may forget. But the literal reading of the Hebrew there actually says, she will forget. In, in other words, you know, to the people that are listening right now, there's some good mothers and there's some mothers that weren't that great. And you may not have had that great an example. But here's what God is saying. It doesn't matter. Even if you had a wonderful mother, the great tragedy of great parents is that one day those parents are going to pass away. And God is saying, even the best of mothers pass away. They leave us. But God says, you know what? Even though she leaves you, my love for you is indestructible. And so whether you had a great mom or whether you had a terrible mom, none of that matters. Because motherhood in general is just a metaphor. God is saying, it's just an image that I want to give to you for the kind of love that I have for you. 
And honestly, it's an inadequate metaphor because my love, my love goes beyond even the love that a mother has for a baby there at her breast. And so here's my question for this morning. Have you worked that truth into your mind and heart yet? Has it come and brought you the deepest of powerful satisfaction? There is a holy love that, that God has granted His people to look at your spouse, at your children, at your neighbor, at your political rival, at your COVID-19 infected city, at your fellow cross-racial citizen, and say, I can look at you and love you in a different way because of what I've received from the God of the universe. Because if that's not happened to you yet, you need to know that is the trajectory of God's path for you. That's where His love is taking you into that place. So we see the fear and we see the promise, and briefly we need to look at this seal. Because look, all of that alone would be astounding and enough, but God goes further. <laughs> because a promise honestly is only as good as the word of the one who makes it. And I'll be honest with you, my heart is just stubborn enough to say things like, okay God, I can accept that truth um, in theory. I can, I can assent to the truth that you love me and, and have a good reason uh, uh, why my sort of um, perfect decade-long longing for, to, to go into this new church has been completely ruined. Fine. But what assurances do I have? Is there any action that you've taken on my behalf that would show that this was true? You know, in the old days, couriers had this problem. You know, they would, they would have a message from a king or a lord and it was written and signed, but when they delivered it, the person who would receive it would oftentimes wonder whether the message really was actually true, whether it was verified. And so the kings, when they would roll up the message into a scroll, would take a, a little glob of hot wax, and they would put it right over the fold, and they would take their signet ring and make this impression on that seal. And, and of course, as long as the seal wasn't broken, you knew the message was authentic. So in verse 16, God says, I'm going to back up and authenticate my words with a seal. And here's what he says. He says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. A couple things to take note of before we close here. First, you know, there are some ancient Near Eastern examples of slaves who would have had their master's names engraved or tattooed on the palms of their hands to show that sort of ownership. But we don't have any examples of masters tattooing their servants' names on their hands. In other words, it opens up as a very shocking image. But here's the thing. That's not the word that gets used here. The, the Bible has a word. The Hebrew has a word for the word tattoo, but that's not what it says. The word is engraved. That word is a Hebrew word that, that, that literally is pronounced uh, hakak, uh, from which we get sort of the little word to hack at something. In other words, the word literally means to engrave with a hammer and a chisel. In some places, it's used to describe what a surveyor would do when he would sort of mark off a piece of land with stakes and hammers. In other words, when God says, I have engraved you on my hand, he's not talking about like cute calligraphy. He's talking about a very violent image, a very, a very strong and powerful image. And the question becomes in, why would God change this metaphor? You know, when I was traveling with RUF all those years, when I was an area coordinator, I used to have my little favorite stops that I would go and do some shopping. And on one particular trip, this just happened a few years ago, I stopped at one of my favorite Target stores in um, eastern Alabama. And I was walking through doing some shopping on my way home. 
And I saw what I think a lot of people have seen, and that is a mother sort of pushing a probably three-year-old little girl through the store, and the girl was melting down. I mean, just screaming in pain and hurt because her mother didn't buy her the toy that she wanted. <laughs> and as she sat there and screamed, I remember her saying at one point, why can't you get it for me? You don't love me. I thought to myself, man, that's exactly how a child acts, isn't it? Hey, fast forward to one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas, who was sitting in a room with his disciples, and he says, you know what? I hear what you say about Jesus' resurrection, but I'm not going to believe until I can see the palms of his hands. Do you see why now Isaiah shares this image? Because Isaiah wants us at this moment to be thinking about a violent image of a hammer and a spike so that when Jesus comes and appears before Thomas, what does he say? He says, Thomas, I know you feel forsaken. I know that my promises just look theoretical to you right now. I know that right now your circumstances are screaming at you that none of what I have accomplished is really true. Hey, but Thomas, look, look, look at the palms of my hands. Just look at the nail scars. Don't you understand that I was forsaken on the cross for you? And the reason why I was is so that you will never feel forgotten, that you'll never actually be forsaken. I died and I rose again so that I could make it so. Look at the palms. Look at the palms of my hands. Look, here's my question. How different would we really be this morning if I knew that was true? My guess is awfully different. Let me pray. Lord, grant us the grace to take that image in. Give us the time. Give us the sense of purpose to take joy in what you've done for us in all this. Father, our fears are closing in around us. 2020 has been crazy. So we need you to comfort us with the knowledge that you have us engraved on, our, on your palms. Show us that, Father, in some way this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.